Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 50, Act 1, Precious Blake, Speed of Trust, recorded March 6th, 2022. Ooh, yeah, oh. I'm so damn tired of waiting on a perfect A plus B. One size fits all prudent kids all screaming about irrevocability. Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches, and fight our own way free. Cause the rules don't lie, but they don't apply to people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out. And the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives allowed are the only roads you can see. Just remember who walls were built to fall for people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Hey, hey, TA audience. Welcome to Teaching Artistry Podcast. This podcast is researched, recorded, and produced on the unceded lands, water, and air, stewarded by the Canarsie and Muncie Lenape peoples in what is colonially known as Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of our global community. Invite your peeps, colleagues, and friends to join our community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and head over to teachingirishry.org to access episodes, guest bios, our video series, merchandise, and more. Teaching Artistry Podcast is supported by Filling the Well, a new podcast from Arts Midwest, created to nourish, provoke, and inspire artists and arts leaders. In this five-part series, hear from creative change makers as they share their takes on how to shift power dynamics, avoid burnout, build authentic community, share resources, and advocate for support. With each episode, you'll find links to explore these ideas further and act in your community. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or check out artsmidwest.org slash fillingthewell. So I'm really excited about our guest, Precious Blake. Precious identifies as a visual journalist, archivist, illustrator, collage artist, and an arts administrator. And she and I have been sharing space over the last couple of months because I was invited by the National Association of state arts agencies to moderate sections of a webinar series surrounded or um, that was sort of centered around uh, a piece of work, uh, research work that Precious put together. And we'll learn more about that. But in those planning sessions, I was just really, really, really drawn to Precious's, um, I don't know, the way she just held space uh, the language that she uses, the care that she offers. And for me, having Precious on as a guest, a podcast guest, is quite special. So in this act, we learn about her background as an artist, her current work, and the process of a commissioned research project 
for our field. Here is episode 50, act one, Precious Blake, Speed of Trust. Hello, Precious. Hello, Courtney. (laughs) Welcome to Teaching Artistry Podcast. This is a podcast that celebrates artists, culture, and equity. And I'm super excited for um, our conversation today. I want to know, I want to know everything. We've been sharing some spaces uh, over the last couple months. And every time you open your mouth, I'm always like, precious. I love it. Everything that you say is so amazing. Um, So let's start with just a, a, you know, potentially it could be loaded, but hopefully it's not landing too hard but how are how are you how are your loved ones doing i i'm settling in into this day yes going through quite a few emotions but that's okay i'm a cancer those things happen and so just settling in feeling getting comfortable with that you know kind of sunday renewal <laughs> of all those things. Um, and my loved ones are good. Yeah, mom's good, sister's good, nephew's good. Um, blessed to be able to say that too, so. I'm also a Cancer. Mm, yes, Cancers, crappy Cancers. Yes. Feeling all the all the feelings all the time. <laughs> um, and, and I think we're, I think we're good at naming them and like li- allowing them to be in any given space that we're in at least that's that's my experience um how do you identify as a teaching uh sorry how do you identify as an artist what type of artist yeah so I identify as a visual journalist and archivist who moonlights as an illustrator (laughs) and a collagist so um I went to school I went to art school for illustration and printmaking and I was always the odd one out in both (laughs) studios um, because illustration is a beautiful communication art, right? So really learning how to take an idea and build a narrative around it visually. Um, But the way that I approach art and making is really based on documentation and uh, being observant of people, situations, realities and landscapes. So a lot of my work, it comes kind of like from a researcher perspective. So very curious, very um, inquisitive. Almost all of my art starts with some kind of burning question that I just wanna learn more about. And usually I like to work with people, interview people, learn their stories to kind of like further investigate that question. I think none of my questions ever got answered, but that's not the point. (laughs) The point is to get other people's um responses and so I do that a lot of that kind of inquisitive research work in all the things that I do and you know it takes a creative person to learn how to ask a question too so I commend you as well because you are a pretty amazing moderator and I I love the (laughs) thank you I don't know many people who are visual artists but I love what you just talked about your inquiry-based art making research base I mean that completely makes sense as to how I like how I have intersected with you and um I'm curious though about your process like you're you you like to to talk to people as part of your research and and get their story so that then you can create 
are they the subjects or, or are they just somebody who might be able to answer the burning question that you have? Usually it's kind of like a collective of voices. So they kind of all weave together. So yeah, so like for my, um, my thesis, Creatives of Color, I interviewed over 30 people in Baltimore who you know identified as a person of color and also worked in the arts industry in some shape or form. So, you know, a lot of folks were from MICA, a lot of folks were working artists, a lot of folks were arts administrators and cultural organizers. And my burning question was, you know, how can we live a sustainable life as a Baltimore artist? Um, and there were like four sub questions under that that are kind of sprinkled within the project. But I was really thinking about like, what is your experience? What is the experience of, you know, a black artist in Baltimore and how can we thrive and live together? Um, and I interviewed, you know, all different folks, not just black um, Baltimore artists, but for the most part, you know, it, that definitely resonated the most uh, for sure for those folks. So that was kind of the beginning of me trying to figure out like, oh, I kind of like this way of doing illustrations and I drew all their portraits. So I drew the environment that we were being interviewed in. Um, you know, I drew the napkins that were near us. I kept the, you know, maybe postcard from the cafe that we were at and I put that as a collage. So it was kind of like documenting that conversation as like a time capsule so it was contextualized that this answer is being given in this space at this time. Um, some things are, you know, lasting and other things really make the most sense because I interviewed these people in 2015, 2016, <laughs> you know, um, in Baltimore, Maryland and all different parts of Baltimore, Maryland. So it was also a landscaping project because I was kind of going to all different parts of the city and drawing different parts of the city too. So I got to know a lot about people's personalities and their likes and their interests based off of where their most comfortable freeing self was in the city. Like where in the city did they feel the most at home and most comfortable? Um, and I was willing to go to them and go into their space. So I learned a lot about the city, you know, visiting 30 people in, the whole, in 30 different places around Baltimore. I'm I'm picture I'm picturing you driving around. Um, I didn't have a car at that point. It was public transit. <laughs> oh, <laughs> even even more than you get to see more because you're not having to focus on a road, right? Um, the uh, I I could start to see your collaging, um, as you were talking about it and that idea. You probably already said this. I'm sorry, but the artifacts and the archiving. I mean, that must I. I'm, I might be projecting a little bit, but I, that must make the the person that you're talking to feel some type of like loved way. You know what I'm saying? Like that you took that much time, not just only to like come see them and capture their story, but then to um, document it in that artistic way must, I, 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 I don't know. That just seems like really lovely. <laughs> I definitely, you know, started off, with care, you know, um, you know, I didn't necessarily go to journalism school, but, you know, in the ways in which we capture and listen, especially to people who were telling me very personal, maybe even painful, you know, memories and experiences 
living and working in Baltimore as an artist. I wanted to be respectful of that. And so as much as I could be present for them and know that, you know, I'm capturing this moment, we're together, you know, I also made it clear that you know, there's some multitasking involved because I'm having a, a conversation with them and I want to be present while drawing them at the same time. So I, and I, I gave this as a press, as a kind of a precipice, like when you see the drawing, it may not look exactly like you because I was focusing on being present with you and allowing my hand to do whatever it needed to do to capture the moment. So sometimes I look down, but I wanted to give people eye contact. So that's also the kind of vibe of a lot of my portraits and a lot of my illustrations. It's like, it kind of looks up like that person, but not really, but it's because I'm not focused on taking a photo. I'm not focused on realism. I'm focused on my hand also being kind of like a third act in this story, right? Like my hand is also documenting how it's feeling in the moment. Um, and I remember a teacher of mine was like, you know, wanted me to be more explicit about that. Like, there's no objectivity <laughs> in the art. I am also in it, you know, like maybe if I was having an off day that day, if I, if it was raining and the bus wasn't cooperating and then I finally get there, like I might not be on my P's and Q's or if it's a sunny day and it's really great, if I'm nervous, if I'm scared my hand is going to show that in my drawing. So, you know, looking back at that project, like I can tell like, ooh, I was real off that day. <laughs> um, so it's really interesting for me to look back for even my own storytelling, but I do hope that, and I think it was true, you know, when I, when I, I still have really good friendships and relationships with the people who I've interviewed, that they felt cared for and just like, you know, listened to for about an hour to, you know, talk to this bright-eyed, you know, potential very new arts administrator that's going to enter this industry and just wants to learn their stories. And I think they did really appreciate that. They, you know, gave me their time for free, which I really did love <laughs> that they did. Um, so, so did you grow up in Baltimore? No. So I was born in New Jersey and then I grew up in Westchester County, New York. So White Plains. Yeah. Um, and then came to Baltimore to go to school, the Maryland Institute College of Art. And then I stayed afterwards after I graduated. I have, um, my aunt lives in Baltimore. Um, yeah, and my cousin, I used to work for the state, so or yeah, the state department. So he would live in different parts of the DMV, and I would go visit. And um, I remember seeing Sweat at a theater in Baltimore. I'm pretty sure that was there. Anyway, that, I, I don't know a lot about Baltimore, but visiting family. And I went to a conference there, which is where I think I was hanging out with my cousin, and we saw this this. Uh, play um so yeah but i feel like i know i know a lot of people who have gone there who are or who are from there and really have a lot of love for baltimore um what's it like there yeah i mean i think one of the so when i was choosing a college to go to place was really important to me of course um the, the school itself and their offerings was a huge factor. 
<laughs> but the biggest factor was that I wanted to be in a predominantly black city. I wanted to be in a city. Um, I didn't want to be like divorced from neighborhoods and community. Um, because that's something that, you know, I had always been looking for and wanted my college experience to be enriched in that way. And so I really didn't get to like know a lot about Baltimore until maybe my last year or two years at MICA. And then eventually when I graduated and Baltimore is like, you know, it's a real, it's a city with grit and very much, we're not gonna wait for people to give us anything we are going to just do it. I think there's a willingness and an openness to be collaborative and to work with other artists who are kind of on the same boat and to make beautiful creative things out of it. Um, but it's also, you know, a city that hurts a lot, you know, and especially for the creative community, people who really just want to live beautiful, abundant, creative lives and often um, that, that passion and that goal, especially if you, if you are born and bred from Baltimore, um, often that love and care maybe is not always tended to, or it's tended to with the same people over and over again. And so what does it mean to really celebrate all kinds of creatives, not just the ones that kind of again and again and again get opportunities. So often kind of, you know, like, um, you know, we talk about food deserts, you know, resource deserts. And I have to continue to remind folks, like it's not that Baltimore doesn't have resources. It doesn't, it's not that Baltimore is without, it's not like we are working within this deficit mindset. It's that the people who hold those resources are deciding who gets them. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a beautiful city. I lived there for 10 years and, um, I think it, it also just came to a point, you know, because I said earlier, I live in Philly now that, um, you know, a lot of creatives and people who even live and are raised in Baltimore tend to leave after a while. And it's because of that tension I was talking about that can often come to a head um, for folks who want to establish roots for a long time. You know, you can, a lot of folks say like, it's a great startup city, but then once people get to a certain point, it's hard to sustain it over time. Mm -hmm. um, so what does it mean to like, kind of hit that point and then where, where do you go from there? But I know that there's a lot of folks that are working really hard to make it a sustainable city for artists and creatives to thrive and live in um, over time. But you know, takes work, takes time. So you grew up <clears throat> mainly in, in Westchester County. Um, what, how, how were you, um, like what kind of kid were you? What was your grow, like growing up and how were you engaged in the arts? as a kid I was such a moody kid oh my goodness because you know being a cancer you just oh all the feelings are felt and on top of being a teenager um all the feelings being felt um but I think I was I was more in my head you know like I was a, my mom would say like I couldn't I couldn't be in a car ride for more than 15 minutes without like a paper and pen just something to to scribble on or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so 
drawing definitely became like my first love and just a way to kind of just figure out what my emotions were um, and have it kind of, you know, be a healthy way to process them. Um, so, you know, wasn't necessarily, and I was a pretty good student, I would say. Um, and, you know, I definitely applied myself a lot in college. I was a, a top student, a student, things like that. But um, I really think, you know, I am, I have a sister who's 14 years older than me. And, you know, kind of being the baby, <laughs> I think, you know, a lot of times when I talk to my friends and family, like I definitely, I definitely think that, you know, I try to light and joy and laughter and a lot of things, especially in, in times where it wasn't always apparent or abundant. Um, so, yeah, moody, moody teenager, moody, moody, definitely went through an emo phase that definitely occurred, you know, um, not hardcore because I grew up in a pretty conservative Christian household. So yeah. the way that I had to interpret my emo-ness for it to be acceptable <laughs> was um, like getting into Christian rock and things like that. Like things that's like, oh, it's emo, but it's for the Lord. Um, mm. <laughs> and, you know, my parents kind of looked at me sideways, but they said, oh, we'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> really Sex. funny yeah like, you know, i'm not totally into it that much anymore but you know drawing and art definitely was a was a great outlet for me to just work through all the things that a teenager and a kid has to work through <laughs> yeah um i'm also the the youngest my, there wasn't as big a uh, age gap between me and my older sister but um there was, there was, you know, like when I got to high school, she was gone. So there was a lot of like, like watching what, what's happening over there and being like, okay, what can I do? That's different. What, what, what's working? What's not working? <laughs> how do I, how do I maneuver in this little family? Um, so, yeah. So the drawing, the writings. So when did you feel like uh, you started to get train training or did you? Um, yeah, so in high school, I had an amazing, amazing art mentor. Um, she was my art teacher, Miss Andrea Walters. And yeah, I took all of her art classes. And there was a point where she knew she couldn't take me much further in mm -hmm. my learning. Um, and so she encouraged me to connect with our home economics um, teacher at the time who knew about some um, summer, uh, summer art programs, summer art like residencies for teenagers, uh, pre-college programs rather. And so that home ec teacher got me connected with two programs. One um, was the Rhode Island School of Design pre-college program and then the Cooper Union fall high school program as well that um, I attended. So I was able to take two of those courses. And then I also did a couple of community art college classes too, to supplement my experience. Um, and in high school, I went to Woodlands High School. They have this um, thing called a WISE project. It's the Woodlands Individualized Senior Experience where you can trade a English and gym credit if you create like your own project that would 
take those classes. So it had to have some kind of English and literacy component and some kind of physical component to it. A lot of people- um, Like an independent study? Yeah, basically like an independent study. Yeah, that's why it's like individualized senior experience. Um, but you have to create cool. you have to create your own classes and have mm. someone to sponsor you. Um, cool. Yeah, and so I ended up doing that for my senior year, and I made a mural. I made a, a mural for my um, for my school, and I was being like it was on like on spring break and when the school would be closed, I would have access to the art room that was there and I would be able to work on the mural. The home ec teacher, her husband was a carpenter or rather not a carpenter, he worked in construction and they were able to get me wood to paint on that I was able to um, prime myself. So that was a really great experience. Never had you know physically done a mural by myself, <clears throat> you know, learning how to scale learning how to paint from afar and things like that. And then, you know, put it all together for display in my high school. It was the weirdest mural too. I'm very surprised they even accepted the image. <laughs> what was it? It was, so it was kind of, I was focused on like the circle of life in general. Mm -hmm. And so it was this kind of very, and I was really into surrealism at the time. So, it was, and I, I believe that I had dreamed this mural. So I tried to draw it and it had like a woman in a yoga pose turning into a marble hand. And then there's an owl or a hawk like in the middle of the screen. And then there's this like idyllic, beautiful Japanese garden landscape. <laughs> and, you know, it was like, this is real weird, precious. Um, <laughs> But I was so into it because I was trying to make a point. But and the point really, you know, you know, and as a high schooler was that everything is connected and everything is relational. And so even though I'm physically drawing these things like kind of glued and smashing together, I felt it was kind of this harmonious kind of um, completely like stretched out to the imagination of the things that we think of as the circle of life. So um, there's a way that you can like enter into the mural and then like exit out of it with your hand. It's odd. It wasn't, you know, inappropriate. It was just odd. And I'm yeah, yeah. glad that they said, sure, let's put this random mural up that's, you know, not, you know, just for decorative purposes. So yeah, I'm glad they made me do that. I hope the mural's still there. I'm not sure. I haven't visited mm. my house in a while. Be interesting to know if it's still there, yeah. Uh, uh, that seems really deep, like beautifully deep. Yeah. For, you know, I don't know if I was thinking in depth like that at 17. <laughs> in my head, I was I like all these thoughts for sure. <laughs> um, when you talk about so far, things I've heard from you are care, like abundance, um, yeah, like gifting, the idea of interconnectedness, like um, you have a you have a big heart, it seems, which is really nice. Um, I think this is why I'm drawn. I'm drawn to like being in spaces with you because of how nurturing you seem to be. That's really heartwarming to hear. That's how I want to always lead. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
yeah i'm curious i'm just curious like where that comes from in you i think it's just probably probably part of my nature and personality just in general so you know you were talking about us both being cancers and you know wanting to be in in, in a service industry like you know be working with nonprofits and in some respects even the arts industry um is a service industry um wanting to make sure that wrongs or things that I've experienced that I know can be better for the future and better for generations and people after me, um, being able to know that I'm working towards building and manifesting a future that I want for myself and then for folks that are around me. So, you know, I always wanna make sure that no matter what I do, I start with people first, you know, emotions first because I think often we, we don't allow those emotions and we don't allow our truest selves to be at the forefront and at the center because you know woohoo capitalism but also ways in which we've all kind of been indoctrinated into and have absorbed different ways that white supremacy kind of like flows into all of our daily lives. And so the antidote to a lot of that is, well, what does care look like? You know, if we were to redo, think of something new, think of a new world in a future with a care sensibility, how different would things look like? Um, and so that's something that's always been on my mind. And it's not like I came to that revelation when I was young. But, you know, when you go through things and you notice how people treat you, you know, my first thought is like, I don't want people, anyone else to feel this way, you know, mm. ever again. Or, you know, I, I want to also have space to process my emotions where it doesn't always have to be in an art piece. You know, I can allow my emotions and feelings to live raw, honestly, you know, how they are. and. Sometimes every day I, I fight that intuition, but my intuition always gets me right. <laughs> you know, after a while, it's like you can't hold you can't hold mm -hmm. me away for too long. And you know, sometimes I'm like, you know, I work with my head and my brains a lot, but sometimes you just gotta follow what, what your gut is saying. So, you know, it probably, you know, is connected to also the care that I've received in life too. And, you know, my mother and, you know, my sister and, you know, friends and times where I didn't receive the care that I deserved. So always being reflective in that way and um, introspective in that way. It always sets me up for whenever, whenever I do another project or whenever I um, approach work. Mm. Well, thanks for that. Um... Well, let's, let's go into that. I realize I, who, we haven't talked about like what you do, <laughs> which is kind of, you know, lovely that that wasn't the first question I asked, but yeah, where are you currently working? What, what do you do there? Yeah. So I work at the village of arts and humanities in Philadelphia as their senior operations manager and the village of arts and humanities is a, a beautiful, wonderful organization that's been around for about 35 years. And they're kind of like three tenants is really, you know, 
equitable revitalization of community through art activation. So what that looks like is that they have a entire art campus of you know renovated row homes in the in North Philadelphia that are outfitted to be you know music recording studios and technology studios and computer labs, dance studio, fashion studio, tile works, because tile and clay works is really a, a core piece of the work that they do. Um, and also a paper making facility that is owned and kind of stewarded by a project of theirs called the People's Paper Co-op. So all these projects and all these art activation spaces including all of the parks that they also renovate because they have quite a few parks in that area um, are really used to support and revitalize the area. So they're in this corridor called the Germantown Lehigh Corridor. And in Philadelphia, it's one of the most disinvested corridors in the city, you know, people say challenged, but I like to say disinvested because it means what it actually means. So, you know, highest poverty rates, highest, you know, um, rather, you know, lowest education rates, you know, crime, um, you know, addiction and drug use and things like that. But there's so much heart and soul in that area that people are not just what the state wants to name them as, you know? And so all of the, the physical art campus and the ways in which the village is often renovating houses and spaces in order to support the neighborhood so they can really feel like this area is theirs and that it is going to be in a incline in regards to their prosperity. And so the village does quite a lot, you know, they have a care not control campaign where they're trying to get um, end youth incarceration across Pennsylvania. Um, the People's Paper Co-op is a women's in reentry program. So, you know, women who are in reentry can join their fellowship and, you know, learn how to make paper and printmaking and advocate for, you know, women and mothers to come home. You know, they, they work on the Black Mamas uh, bailout day that happens. Now it's kind of like all year, which is really great. So that's kind of the overall with the village and I've been following them for a while. So I feel super excited and privileged to be a part of that institution, um, that organization rather. Mm -hmm. And what I do, and you know, it's I've been there for about a month is that they are at a really great growing phase um, as a mid-sized organization. So I like to say to folks, you know, as senior operations manager, I work to make your work easier. So what are ways in which we can modify, update, sunset, introduce new systems in the ways that we work and operate? So our mission and our vision is aligned with what we how we actually do. So the what is there, it's how we do um, structurally as an organization that I'm supporting the executive director on because they're at this really beautiful like chrysalis moment um, mm. at, the, at the organization. So the new role that they have needed for quite a long time and 
I'm excited to kind of grow and learn more about how I can help my colleagues do the work, you know, mm -hmm. and if we can make sure that our organization structurally is sound, then everyone can, can be deeper, wider in the, the hard, but fulfilling community work that they do um, mm -hmm. in the arts, yeah. Yeah. Wow, that sounds amazing. Um, and where were you before? So you just started this job. Where were you prior to that? Yeah, so I was at the Maryland State Arts Council, mm -hmm. and I was at the Kennedy Center, and I also worked at uh, Arts Every Day. So different, different organizations in Maryland, D.C., mm -hmm. and Baltimore. So DMV. <laughs> Let's let's talk. Let's segue. Let's segue into um, into how we met. So, um, uh, NASA is <laughs> the National Association for State Arts Agencies. Um, how how I came into the picture was um, they have like an annual uh, like professional development series i guess and i was i was in, originally invited to moderate one of the panel discussions and then as that group were you on that i think you might have been involved in that potentially i was helping with the planning and mm. administrative role and yes we were initially invited to um be a panelist for us and you know as things roll and as plans happen you know we wanted you, we wanted to make sure that there was enough space and container for your role to feel really fulfilling. And so um, that's all right. Yeah. And <laughs> we, yeah. We, we reconnected for another really amazing opportunity. So, yeah. And you, you researched and drafted and then, you know, worked to produce this um, document called Teaching Artists Relationships with State Arts Agencies Strategy Sampler. Um, what is this document and how did you go about developing it? Yes. So this document is a really a snippet. You know, I, I love snippets in time and I love contextualizing certain things. Mm -hmm. um, but often the arts education group um, a lot of the different kind of pods at, at NASA. So there's arts education group, there's a public art group, there's an executive director group, arts education group. Mm. Um, quite often the arts education directors that work at state arts agencies or the arts education staff, mm -hmm. every once in a while, there's there usually can be a guiding theme or a guiding inquiry that everyone's asking the same question. And often certain strategy samplers so, or research projects come about that can kind of help answer some questions that a lot of people are asking at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the perks in you know, being a member of NASA is that if there's something that you and several other colleagues are kind of working on, uh, usually NASA will try to find a way to gather information for them to make um, informed decisions. And one of the major things that had been coming up again and again over several years was about how teaching artists um, are kind of brought into the fold and treated and celebrated and paid 
through a state arts agency lens. So how are state arts agencies in relationship and right relationship with teaching artists or how can they be? Um, and this is something that a lot of arts education staff had been working on independently, sometimes collaboratively with other folks, but there came a point where there needed to be like a definitive document to just capture how everyone is talking about teaching artists, how folks are interacting with teaching artists, what resources, programs, events that they create with or for teaching artists as well. Just so it's like, you know, you can kind of see what your neighbors are doing or people who are across the country are doing. And it really helps to be a great advocacy tool. So if you yourself within your agency really wants to do an idea, often folks will ask, well, who else has done this? <laughs> you yeah. then have this great strategy sampler that says, look, I can point to all these people and I've reached out to them and I've learned their methodologies and you know, this is something that I would really like for us to explore. So that's what the strategy sampler is for. It's really tailored to people who are arts education staff at state arts agencies. So super narrow, super specific, but it doesn't mean that it can't have relevance for folks outside of that particular lens. Um, and when I was approached to do this project, it was pretty appropriate because I was going through, I was also thinking about those questions as well when I worked at the State Arts Council, um, which is considered a state arts agency. Mm -hmm. And we were trying to redefine and really expand what it means to be a teaching artist and how we can expand our support and our care to teaching artists. So, um, when I transitioned to being a consultant and you know creating my own business, um, Susan Austin reached out to me and said, hey, like I know this has kind of been something that's been on your mind for quite a long time. And there's this opportunity to actually kind of codify that and do some research. So um, when she you know, invited me to be the author for the project, I was like, yeah, let's do it. I would have yeah. done this anyways, but I would have had to um, do it on my own for free. And I was appreciative <laughs> that um, this was something that, you know, someone like myself, you know, who was myself, um, put time, energy to do um, because it was a commissioned mm. project. Yeah. Um, and so the process that, you know, me, uh, you know, and Susan and uh, Nancy Doherty at um, the NEA, we talked about how to approach this document and what would be the most helpful way to kind of structure. And what I came up with, I don't think I actually came up with a framework until um, I did some preliminary research. So I first just went to every state arts agency website, if I could if they had one, most do, um, some don't, and just looked at teaching artists' presence. So their policies, their procedures. And the reason why I started off this way is because if a teaching artist wants to connect with their state arts agency, the easiest way they're gonna do it is through your website. So what do you have publicly available versus, oh, this is a project we're kind of working on, but it's not on our website. What's the public research, right? What can, 
because you know Sarah's agencies they serve people they serve they have to serve the people because the money comes from everybody's taxes mm-hmm. um, so I was really interested in like what public facing information they all had and so all 50 states and I believe six um, jurisdictions um, I just looked on their website saw what they had available and kind of put together you know kind of a I don't know what it might be called but um, just an overview document of all the ways they were describing teaching artists and things like that. So that's public mm-hmm. facing. And then I did um, some interviews with six or yeah, six uh, eight of different agencies to kind of learn the behind the scenes of some of the public facing documents. So that was an opportunity for me to ask, you know, how did this particular policy come into place? Why did you decide to do this thing? And I chose six different agencies that represented different geographic areas and had um, really stellar responses or stellar like um, presences of teaching artistry. Um, or they were you know, doing a really exciting, interesting project that I hadn't heard about before mm-hmm. and I wanted to learn more. So then those six agencies um, kind of were kind of brought as like case studies in the document, you know, kind of like here are some, maybe not best practices, but example processes and example practices that may inspire something for other state arts agencies. Um, And once I interviewed everybody, and once I did the public research, it came, it became clear that there were themes that were coming up. And so I framed those themes as determinants of health for a teaching artist's career. And so those four uh, determinants kind of became the guideposts on how I structured the report. And what are those four determinants? Yes, the determinants are um, social justice or equity and social justice, pay equity and transparency, community building, and credentials and skills building. Yes, yes, yes. So yeah, those seem to be, and I chose these four in particular, and because I have Mm -hmm. to continue, you know, saying this is that the report is again, through the lens of a state arts agency. So I chose these four determinants or these four kind of like themes and which are the areas that state arts agencies are working within the most. So there might be other determinants, there may be other themes, you Mm -hmm. know, these four areas don't cover everything that represents teaching teaching artists, but these are the four ways in which state arts agencies um, across the board I saw were doing the most work in. Um, Mm. really thoughtful, deeply impactful work or work in which they were having struggle and Mm. challenge and and they wanted to kind of, you know, be better in certain areas. So Mm. those were the four that we landed on. Thank you for listening to episode 50, act one of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body, Precious Blake, Speed of Trust. Join us next time for act two. 
This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the director of creative content. John O. Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry, the gram at teaching artistry with CJB, and now on YouTube. Check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud and Spotify, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now.